little bit about muscle tension and uh, the relationship between breathing and can you tell us a little bit about like more of that? Sure, sure. So basically, whenever we take an inhale, we're requiring certain muscles to work to expand our rib cage and to deliver air, right? And what can happen is, especially the COVID times, and if you have a mask on, okay, we're now increasing the resistance required to breathe and deliver air, right? So what we have to do is we have to recruit more muscles, okay? What this can lead to is increased tension in your neck muscles, your traps, so sternocleidomastoid, scalenes, now it might be a little bit uncomfortable to move your neck around because you're requiring these muscles up here to do more work than they have to, right? With natural uh, slow or quiet breathing, they call it, should really be mainly diaphragm descending down, which increases the volume of our thoracic cavity, all right? So sometimes this tension can be temporary or sometimes it sticks around. But a quick thing you can do is actually a big exhale out, okay? So through the mouth, make it like you're blowing out birthday candles. So we just got our abdominal muscles engaged right there. All right. Now what we did, we put our ribs in a position where they're internally rotated. We just put our diaphragm in the correct position to work like a piston. All right. Because that's what it is, really. So when you're doing a squat, how can this help your your uh, ascension upwards? So this is this is a little controversial, but essentially the pelvic diaphragm works in harmony with the thoracic diaphragm okay when one goes down the other should also go down mm -hmm. so when one goes up the other should follow okay if they become out of whack then you can create basically a vacuum where there's negative pressure or too much pressure if one goes down and one goes up when we take an inhale like i mentioned before the thoracic diaphragm comes down and the pelvic diaphragm should go down as well when we squat the same thing should occur the pelvic diaphragm should relax and allow our pelvis to come down and in. And so if we couple the squat down with the inhale, we're actually maximizing the harmony of the two diaphragms. And then when we come up, we're doing something even better. When we go up, the pelvic diaphragm will become more tense, okay? It's supporting your body weight underneath you. And the thoracic diaphragm should come up with it, okay? As the thoracic diaphragm comes up, the ribs come down, abdominal muscles can now work because they're in a better length tension relationship. Our glutes and our hamstrings can also work, okay? And here's how that becomes. If we're squatting, we want our glutes and our hamstrings to work. We can all agree on that, right? Of course. Okay, so if our ribs are down and internally rotated and our pelvis is posteriorly rotated, okay? Reversed of what most people look like, what we're doing is we're putting our abs in a better position so they can hold pressure and maintain pressure. So everybody talks about intra-abdominal pressure. If you want correct intra-abdominal pressure, get your ribs down. That'll create that compression, all right? Now, when those ribs come down, abs come on, and our pelvis comes back, we're taking the ischial tuberosity, okay, and bringing it closer to our tibia. So we just turn our hamstrings on. In layman's terms, where is that? So when we're sitting on our chairs right now, mm -hmm. that thing we feel, that bone, that's the ischial tuberosity. Okay. Okay. And that's... The hamstring is going to run from there all the way down to like our knee area, right? Pesantorinus. So when we make that a little bit shorter, we're not putting it in a position to do work. So when we squat, they can actually help us out. And the same goes for the glutes, all right? So just by breathing out, we can put a ton of muscles in a correct position. And now we get more power when we're lifting. So that's the alternative. If you guys want to try it out, um, I would go light with the weight first. And then if it feels good, no, try to increase. So what I normally do during a squat is I hold my breath for the descent mm -hmm. and the ascension upwards. Mm -hmm. So you're saying to slowly inhale on my way down and then slowly exhale my way up. Correct. Okay. Right. And that's that's similar to a Valsalva or is it, um, is it a little bit less than a Valsalva? It's... It's going to be a modified Valsalva, really. When you do the Valsalva, you're you're trying to increase that intra-abdominal pressure. And we, we can do that with an inhale. Because the first step of a Valsalva is inhale. Okay? So if we're doing the inhale as we go down, we're maintaining that pressure. But the important part of exhaling while you go up is we can actually get those glutes and those hamstrings and those abs to help us. Because if we're inhaling the entire time, we're stretching everything out. Now they can't do their job. Now we have to pull in other muscles. 
our back extensors, our hip flexors, because that's what keeps us upright. Right. So it's just about creating a balance. You know, we don't want all the time these muscles to be on and all the time these to be off. They have to go on and off. They have to switch it up. It's alternation. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So you guys can definitely add a little bit of weight to your squat if you add this method in. Try with light weight, as you mentioned first, and see how you do. You'll probably be able to generate a little bit more pressure in the abdominal cavities, and you'll get everything kind of centered where it needs to be on the ascension to your squat. Um, so now in terms of Austin, you had to me these infrared light bulbs. Um, what is this supposed to do? Um, I mean, I could talk some on the infrared, but I'll, I'll talk some on the methylene blue too, because uh, we all took it, and uh, I want to know what you guys think of it too. But uh, it, it definitely uh, improves your mitochondria, and uh, your mitochondria is basically the powerhouse of your whole body, which is running your whole system, you know? So giving it food is powering it so you don't get like Alzheimer's or any of the degradation of uh, aging. Mm -hmm. So basically with uh, infrared light, you're, you're balancing out the amount of blue light you get because everyone gets so much blue light from uh, all of the technology nowadays. So you want to make sure that you're re restoring um, the balance of uh, melatonin so that you're not out of uh, whack with uh, the sun and the uh, circadian rhythm cycles. Of your so body. essentially allows your body to make more melatonin so you could fall asleep faster at night. Yes, it helps with you getting regulated with the sun because you're, everything runs off of a, a, the cycle of nature. So you're trying to simulate the sun setting to go with your yeah, circadian rhythm. Interesting. Okay. How much time per day would you say to sit in front of one of these bulbs? Um, I would say... Start it off light. You could do even like five to ten minutes at a time, but you get more benefit if you do like fifteen minutes and then wait an hour or two and then do it again instead of doing it all in one shot. Okay. But yeah. I would say I would say even do it in the morning and you can even do it before bed too if if you find benefit in that. I know light sensitivity increases uh, towards the end of the day, so I feel like it would be more effective even. Like you at, know, night. at night, yeah, you wouldn't need as much time. Yeah, yeah. You could sense. do it in the morning too, though, because you think the sun—it's red in the morning and it's red at night. Right. You know? right. So you can get the benefit if you're really trying to maximize the benefit. Yeah. But I, I definitely think there's research into it helping, like repair the eye and. Oh, absolutely. So letting the infrared go into the eye. Yes. Into the cones and rods of the eye. Yes. Um, and it does it? You think help the actual eye itself? Like you. Do you think you can see better afterwards? Yeah, I think it definitely restores the eye. How do you think? But I, I think everything's a balance. You know, everything works in cycles. So you're getting blue from everything. So you need the red. And the red is just there to provide benefit, you know? Interesting. And you mentioned that the methylene blue that we took kind of plays into the infrared light. How does that kind of work? Well, it's, searching, it's uh, working with the uh, red light to help the mitochondria. Okay. Which is improving your memory and your your cells, and apparently uh, increases the oxygen uptake into your brain. So anything that's increasing that is definitely helping your your brain perform. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. Speaking of brain performance, um, so I talk a lot about phenylparacetam. I think it's one of the king nootropics you can take. It upregulates dopamine receptors. It um, makes Caffeine work better. It uh, can help with depression, anxiety. Can also help with cold tolerance. Um, Johnny, I know you got you on to you yeah. know paracetam. Yeah, I can give a kind of a testimonial. Um, so I've kind of been cycling on and off uh, phenylparacetam for about three months. Uh, obviously with other nootropics in a stack, um, but I have a pretty firm belief that it's it's pretty 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 king. Uh, to any other nootropic you can take um, for some of the reasons Rob uh, listed, um, as well as, it, I mean, it could definitely uh, act as a, as kind of a, a method of getting off certain other, you know, drugs, and it helps with addiction, um, whether that be, you know, a lot of people are addicted to Adderall, um, or some other, you know, kind of medicine or pharma drug, 
Um, it helps with that. I found that, you know, like we used to use Adderall in the past uh, and phenylpraxam kind of acted as a substitute uh, in a way. But I found, you know, lots of benefits just from, you know, memory, focus, uh, stimulation. Um, I did also feel, you know, it, it does help with cold tolerance. Um, and it's part of the Anorastam or the Rastam family, which was kind of a created uh it's a family of kind of nootropics that were created in the 70s by a soviet uh scientist to, to kind of help their athletes and soldiers um and that was also you know used in olympic games and i mean it's currently banned by wada the world anti-doping agency because of you know mainly the uh the cold tolerance and also the memory and focus aspect that that it gives to the people person who takes it um which would obviously give an advantage to an olympic athlete who's a swimmer or you know runner or you know it just helps with overall endurance as well um and i think um for me personally mental endurance so being able to focus on a specific task for a length of time without you know um having my uh, attention deviated somewhere else um that's kind of a, a, a big perk of, of, of this nootropic. I, I currently, you know, for transparency, uh, stack it with triacetyluridine, which is another powerful compound. Um, but I use it in phases. So this type of specific racetam uh, you load up on. Um, so you'll load up on a couple of days, uh, four or five days, and I'll feel the lasting effects of it for weeks on end. So I might not take a dose of phenoprastam for two or three weeks and I could still wake up in the morning, you know, after a normal routine and some water and feel it activate, um, which is something that's very invaluable to something that you might, you might not have readily available at, at all times, something you don't have to think about taking all the time, um, which is why I think it's king to all other nootropics. Um, talked about alpha brain before and you know those are like two tablets you know every day um regularly um it doesn't really there isn't as there isn't the buildup that you get from aracetam so there's like you know aracetam coloracetam is this this family is very powerful um hence why you know they're not really fda approved uh because in my eyes they all work um so that's just kind of something about nootropics and, and phenoprasim in specific. Uh, my testimonial personally, from you know being on it for a couple months. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense because the phenoprasim in the long run is going to upregulate the dopamine receptors. So something like Adderall is actually going to like downregulate the dopamine receptors over time, and it's basically going to make you need more and more of it to actually like be useful to you. Mm -hmm. So. The other thing with Adderall is that it creates something called dopamine quin uh, quinone and it actually causes um, dopamine toxicity. So you're going to actually lose a little bit of brain cells and brain function by using Adderall over and over and over again. So something like phenol where you don't have to take it all the time, you know, builds up in the brain, you're allowed to use it as needed and caffeine actually increases its effects even when you're not on it. So when you take caffeine the next day, the phenoprastam effect will instantly hit you again, even more so. And uh, I think it's a very clean way to get motivated throughout the day, get more done. Increases cold tolerance, so during the winter, I think it's a perfect opportunity to take it. Um, if you're trying to get a really good workout in, take it. The only problem is it stays for a very long time, so maybe like, what, six hours? Seven? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've felt it for in a day six to ten hours i would say i wouldn't say any more than ten hours um also i feel like it's effects if you really want to get into deep work so you know everybody has a different line of work um if you really want to focus on something and go into kind of a, like a state like a deep state where you're focusing on one thing and one thing only without any distraction i think it's perfect as well because uh, it's hard you know with cell phones and you know constant activity to kind of focus on a specific task for hours at end, um, I feel like it's beneficial uh, as a supplement. Um, yeah. And you mentioned you also do like jujitsu. Does this help with like uh, your athletic performance in um, like just rolling on the mats and like kind of 
Yeah, I, I definitely have used it uh, sometimes where I'm you know, a little lack of motivation to, to get a roll in or to go train. Um, and it does help with, you know, like I said, the memory focus. So from learning something new and just, you know, having the, the initial thought of like, okay, I might have learned something. Now let me see how I can apply it. And remembering to apply something, um, I feel like it, it, it facilitates that process of, of memory where, um, I might not, my body might not be, um, you know, trying to perform the act, but my brain kind of fires off that maybe that's an option for you, you know, um, specifically I could say, uh, uh, fighting for an underhook, uh, is kind of a very common game if you're playing in something called half guard, um, you know, realizing my, without having my body do it, my brain's just like, go, you know, like I think, I think about it initially, um, and my body kind of goes second to it, so I'll, then I'll perform the movement. But it just overall helps with, with with memory and focus. Yeah, and definitely cuts down that time it takes to learn and memorize like those movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, uh, especially if you're you know writing things down and you're uh, at post uh, training, uh, it does help with remembering you know certain sequences where I'm able to go home and write down the entire sequence when normally I wouldn't be able to remember every nuance that, you know, my instructor went over. So, yeah, it's beneficial for that as well. Yeah, sweet. So that's just one nootropic on its own. I mean, on a daily basis, I stack that. Uh, I don't take it every day. Um, I do stack it with other nootropics to increase its potency and its effects. And uh, I do think it's something that a lot of my followers should give a try to and see how it works for them. So changing topics, um, Alex, I know you were um, vegan slash vegetarian for a number of years. Um, and you one day, or maybe for like a couple, like a month or two, um, felt like the urge to kind of go back to eating almost like our ancestral roots. Um, can you tell me like, or tell us a little bit about what was kind of transcending the cravings and how you kind of decided that you want to give eating back to our ancestral roots to try again? Uh, it's really more so just, you know, the food, the diet that I was eating for several years wasn't, um, initially, you know, it was, it seemed beneficial in a number of ways, but as with all things, you know, it kind of changed and there was, a, I guess a period where I didn't feel satiated after several years of being, you know, between vegetarian and vegan. And, uh, yeah, one day I just started having the craving and fought it for a little bit, but, um, I was in such like digestive distress really that I knew the foods I was eating wasn't going to work anymore. You know, the nuts, grains, seeds, all the legumes. Um, it was really just ripping up my, uh, my digestive system. So I knew I needed something that was going to be nourishing and healing to my GI tract. And you know, what, what does that better than, than animal foods? Yeah. And you were saying, um, before you, you know, you said you were going to have a steak and just go back to it. You were craving a steak for how long? Like a month or so? I probably fought it for like maybe two, three months. Yeah. And like you're... That I wanted a steak, but, you know, like having such hardcore, like ingrained beliefs for five years as a vegan, you know, how do you fight something that goes against what you believe in? Exactly. You know, so it was, it came down to, I guess, my, my conscious minds versus like what my unconscious desire was, you know? Right. So interesting. And uh, after you ate it, you were looking at the clock, waiting for something to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a period of time, maybe like twenty minutes or so after I ate the first steak for like five years, that I was like, you know, looking at my hands to see if I was like turning into a werewolf or something. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect, you know, after not eating meat for five years. But um, it was really just all in my head, I guess, you know. More so the belief system. How'd your energy level feel? I did notice quite an improvement after eating meat again, uh, for sure. Mm. So, yeah, that's a plus. Yeah. And uh, switching gears a little bit, um, I've been a big proponent of raw milk for about a year and a half. Um, and I've been really talking it up to a couple friends. And one of my friends, Austin over here. Um, <laughs> he took a huge liking to it. Um, and he, uh, him and I go back and forth on where we can get our dealers from for raw milk because it's illegal in New Jersey, at least. Um, 
Yeah, you got to get a dealer for it, believe it or not. Super dangerous. It's not really that dangerous. Um, your your lettuce is actually a little bit more dangerous since it's grown in cow manure. It's only dangerous if you're getting feedlot, you know? Yeah. If you're getting it from a big production, like, that's where the milk is going bad, you know? Exactly. The problem is if it's a small farm where they're all eating grass and happy cows, seeing the sun all day, that's where you want to get your milk. And how do you feel after, like, adding raw milk back in your diet? Oh, so good. Like, it was like almond milk, coconut milk. There's no replacement to milk, you know? You just... And I, I, I don't know, maybe it's me, but I've never seen, like, milk come out of an almond, come out of a cashew, no, come out of anything like that. Kind of coconut milk is, is on the fence, but... Yeah, coconut milk is the only thing that's kind of tolerable. Yeah. And all the other ones are just... Yeah, so it's a little bit processed. Like watered down, you know? like mm -hmm. flavoring so it's basically uh almond water that's, yeah, well, that's what it is they're soaked yeah. in the in yeah. and usually there's the all these gums and fillers in yeah. there anyway that it's like well it's like shelf stabilizers yeah like emulsifiers yeah. emulsifiers to give it even a creamy texture yeah. you know but because they separate. can't get it yeah. they can't get a creamy texture from a nut you know it's not gonna work like that yes yeah, <laughs> it's just not the same it's not gonna provide the same benefits and uh some people actually lose weight drinking raw milk due to the CLA content, um, conjugated linoleic acid. And uh, yeah, it's helpful for fat burning. Um, but that's it. All if you, if you can use it as energy, you know, if exactly. you're losing weight, but you're getting more energy, then I think you're on the right track. Yeah, 100 percent. It also helps build muscle mass. I mean, obviously, white protein is derived from milk. Yeah. And uh, casein protein, you know, the slow digesting protein where you should have that at night if you're trying to build muscle due to its like slow digestion properties. You can kind of um, have that slow protein breakdown over the time of sleeping. So, you know, when your mother used to make you warm milk before bed as a kid, I think we were on to something as uh, it helps everybody kind of fall asleep faster. Oh, yeah. And, and with the raw milk, you're getting the lactase, which is the whole reason I thought you know, milk was undigestible, and I didn't realize that if you just add the lactase to it, it's a whole different story. Yeah, exactly. And then it's also like, you got to get the A2 milk versus the A1. So A2 casein protein is actually much more digestible for us versus the A1 protein. Um, but the cows that are A1 produce more milk. So farmers have just, you know, they've pretty much used more of those cows, right? Which would be more of your Holstein is your, your A1, and your A2 is more of your Jersey cows, your your Gundry cows, I think that's how you pronounce cows. it. I'm not sure. Your Gundry. And then there's some... Um, <laughs> yes, you Gundry cows. <laughs> and um, oh, there's another, like Brown Swiss, I think. Those are like your high producers of A2. So, and yeah. you're, getting, you're getting a higher fat content out of that too, I think. Yeah, we definitely need those saturated fats as well. Um, so Giacomo, I had you read the book Plant Paradox a little bit ago. Right. Um, since then, you've been implementing more of those strategies and, and ideologies into your everyday life. Um, and you also said you had some run-ins with GERD um, for a very short amount of time before you realized it was something to do with your diet. Can you tell me, tell us a little bit about that time period from when you realized it to your diet and then how you fixed it? Sure. Yeah. So as soon as I kind of feel or sense that something is not right, I kind of hop on that right away. I'm not the kind of person to, you know, go to a doctor right away if something hurts or something. I did the research and I try to figure out, you know, what's going on. So I was experiencing a little bit of like um, acidity in my esophagus. And, you know, so the first thing I do is I look at my diet. And I'm like, all right, I could definitely take out some carbs. And I texted Rob and he's like, Hey, you should check out, you know, this concept all about stomach acid. So I kind of self-diagnosed that acid reflux might be coming soon. So let's try to prevent it. So what I did was, uh, checked out this book on why stomach acid is actually good for you. Um, if anybody, anybody of the viewers is experiencing acid reflux and you're constantly popping Tums, I would tell you probably wean off of those because the stomach acid in our stomach is the main, you know, the main uh, curator or the digester of the food we eat. If we don't get the stomach acid to break down those proteins, 
it's going to go through our small intestine and then our large intestine and then out to the bloodstream in an undigested form. Which is something I've experienced as a demon. Really? Yeah. You had acid reflux? I had quite a bit. Okay. So is, yeah. that, is that the problem? Is it too alkalizing? Really? There, yeah, I just wasn't having, I wasn't creating enough stomach acid to really digest my foods. I had right. like a running with, you know, what seemed to be autoimmune mm -hmm. uh, issues. You know, I, I developed allergies with gluten and a number mm -hmm. of other things along the lines of kind of like what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That first process really is enough stomach acid and a low enough pH that it can break down those proteins. Because if that gets to your bloodstream without getting broken down, then your body says, this is foreign. Yeah, What's most an immune response. response? Exactly. Yeah. So what I was doing, I was uh, supplementing with methane hydrochloride and uh, pepsin. So pepsin is just a enzyme that breaks down proteins. I was taking that with every meal, and it's also doing an apple cider vinegar tonic, which is super acidic. Um, I just put some cinnamon and some lemon juice, and it tasted great. It tastes like an apple pie. And I take that before every meal. Yeah. I got my buddy on. He loves it now. Um, so I would drink that before a meal, basically creating an environment acidic enough to take in the food and break it down, right? And so as soon as I implemented that, no more symptoms, completely gone. So I was happy. But I realized that it wasn't a long-term solution. So I went back to the diet and checked out the plant paradox. And I was like, what's this about? And he talks a lot about, you know, acid reflux and that the cows, the livestock that we get our meat from, we want to fatten up those cows as much as possible so we can get as much meat as possible. And so two things that are really good at fattening you up are soybeans and corn. As we know, they're not good for you. Corn is huge inflammation, same with soybeans. So when they feed the livestock, the corn and the soybeans, the cows themselves get acid reflux. We know this. And so what they do is they give the livestock calcium carbonate to act as an antacid. All right. So, so what they do is it's similar to humans because we're eating soybean oils and corn in most products that are processed. And then what happens? We get acid reflux and we take antacids. It's really the same as the cows, really. Why don't we go back, look at the diet, take out the corn and soybeans in the beginning so we don't get the, the acid reflux later. So I just think that it's, it's, it takes a little bit more thought. But doing the research does pay off in the long term because this is a more sustainable way to live. And I don't have to take, you know, proton pump inhibitors that are going to dilute my stomach acid and ultimately make the food undigestible. So, mm -hmm. Tums, you know, knock it off. <laughs> what about the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors? Right. The PPIs, so physicians will prescribe those when you have, you know, symptoms of acid reflux, like chest burn or just acidity. Um, and what happens is... Their viewpoint on it is you have too much acid, and that's why you feel acidity in your esophagus. Oh. Yeah. The truth of it is you shouldn't have acid in your esophagus. It should stay in your stomach. But what they'll do is they'll say you have too much stomach acid. Here's a proton pump inhibitor. So we're decreasing H plus ions or hydrogen ions, which is going to bring up the pH. Okay. And that's bad. That's bad because if we have a high pH, we have low acidity. We have low acidity. We're not breaking down the food anymore. So, they're really recommended to stay on the PPIs for two weeks at most, but then people forget and they still have symptoms, so they continue taking these proton pump inhibitors for years at a time, and ultimately, they're just creating a unideal environment for their stomach. And this can lead to a lot of health problems down the line, like Alex said, autoimmune. They're just creating a... It's like when you think you're like, your gut is like, you know, a fireplace, it's like quieting the fire. Exactly. Like just by throwing thumbs on it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Literally. Making the fire a little quieter. And you're like, why am I getting so cold? <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good way to look at right? it. Right? You know? Yeah. Keep that fire going. I wonder if there's a correlation between people who get really cold and low stomach acid. Because you're not digesting properly. A lot of the vegans, vegetarians have super horrible stomach acid content. I mean, it's barely breaking down their food, especially over time. And then, you know, maybe if they do try to go back to eating meat, it doesn't even get digested properly mm -hmm. because you need a ton of stomach acid to break right. it down. Which I noticed initially when I started eating chicken again. Hmm. Surprisingly, I, I, for whatever reason, couldn't stomach chicken or I couldn't really handle it well. It's interesting. Yeah. What so, about beef was fine? Surprisingly. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, I would think it'd be the other way around. That's what I thought. Yeah. Normally, you know, chicken noodle soup, you're sick. Yep. Yeah, no, I couldn't right through me. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I did not know that. I just choose not to eat chicken because it's a small bird versus uh, a cow with four stomachs doing all the digesting for you. I think it's kind of like a no-brainer at that point that cow is doing all the digesting for you. It's eating its vegetables. So, you know, you don't have to eat your vegetables if your animal's eating its vegetables. I think that's a pretty easy uh, concept to grasp. Keep the chicken for the egg, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then get the bone broth as well yeah. from the chicken. All that cartilage. I mean, they're birds, so they're going to have more of those, um, what is it, the chondroitin, the... Uh, yeah, they'll pro I bet you uh, bone broth or from chickens will have a little bit more. Really? I would assume. I'm, I'm only assuming at this point. I mean, it all depends how the chicken lives, you know? Yeah. Oh, of course. So we shouldn't be getting store-bought chicken. We should be going to a butcher. That's what you're saying. Yeah, or a chicken that's roaming around yeah, and eating some bugs. Because they eat insects and stuff. Like, they'll clear a whole yard of ticks, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. like... There's benefits to that. Think about if you had a garden, you just throw the chicken in there and it's yeah. eating all the bugs that are destroying your garden. Yeah. A lot of homesteads yeah, I mean, use chickens for that reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and the poop is like, yeah. the manure is like very good to use as soil. For fertilizer, yeah. Yeah. So it's on, almost like sustainable farming. Like it's oh, yeah. beneficial to have these animals roaming as opposed to keeping them in a... Separated. And yeah. then just having the runoff destroy the crops. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the mass producing is seriously causing a massive issue, not just with... But the separation, you know? Yeah. The separation in mass producing is causing the problem. Right. Not not the, not having mass producing, but small, you know, little things everywhere, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. You know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the um, vegetarian vegan mentality totally understand this where... They feel bad for the animals because they're trapped in a like a small square footage spot and for like basically their whole life, right? And then they just eat and they poop and they eat and poop and it's a horrible life. And then they get slaughtered. And it's a it's just a horrible process. Whereas what we're trying to promote is the pastoral raising of these animals and we wanna make them, you know, graze on grass their whole life and then when time comes you know we have to eat otherwise you can i don't know starve to death i mean we have to eat we have needs um we're put on this life for a reason um i, I think that uh there needs to be um sacrifices made at some point you say thank you to the animal thank you for all of that you've given me thank you for the life that you're sustaining for me and that's it i think you know animal lives are also reincarnated as well um, what do you think about that, Alex? Like the life of the animal versus human experience? Yeah, that's that's a little, uh, a bit, I guess, controversial. You know, depending on who you ask, they'll give you a different answer. Um, my personal opinion, I think that, you know, if we look to nature and you, you see that animal, like a cheetah won't eat a gazelle if it's not hungry, you know? So there's a component of like how we are wasteful in society. And I think a lot of what veganism and vegetarianism is, is kind of oriented towards is you know being more sustainable and and ethical so it's interesting me being you know an ex-vegan after five years still trying to hold on to that ethical component and you know maintaining gratitude while indulging in, in something that i was against for a period of time but but veganism also too by big agriculture is destroying animals too that way interesting. so there is and like there is a catch twenty two there, so that there is animals getting killed either way. It's just yeah, that's, is that food that's often overlooked. Fuel, you know, like yeah. that's the real part it comes down to is it in the cycle. You know, I think. Yeah, I mean, when when the farmers are sticking augers and you know these tillers in the ground to pull up these root crops, they're killing moles. They're killing you know whatever else is under exactly. there. Um, and so it's the soil. Yeah, yeah and I, when you look at veganism or vegetarianism from the point of like. Um, just sustainability you know it's it's great that you save an animal's life and I, and I won't you know speak ill of, of anyone of that does that but at the same time the carbon output of me you know getting goji berries from the other side of the world because I want to be sustainable is is contradictory and I think because we're so disconnected like Austin was saying from like our food 
you know, we don't have this clear-cut idea, like, really of where it comes from. We just know we go to the store and we're an apex predator and we buy our food. And, you know, there's that, that disconnection, I think, is, is really doing a lot of harm, more harm than good, you know. So having people get involved with where their food comes from, where the milk, you know, what farm the milk comes from and, and seeing whatever they're about to eat, I think goes a long way, you know, because like people get depressed and, and our state of, of life or quality of life rather affects our body composition. And we overlook the fact that that same thing can happen to an animal. And then, but we want the best cut of meat, but we just shove that cow in dark, in the dark, you know, in a corner of a room for the last three years of his life, but we want the best quality of meat. And so it's, I think having uh, just a, a level mind, you know, of like sustainability, of what's ethical and, you know, just being uh, conscious or compassionate for all parties involved is really best for all parties involved. Yeah, I, so. I think that's totally, that's a, a very unique and understandable way to look at the situation i mean there's always got to be some sort of sacrifices made regardless of for sure what we decide and you know people everyone wants to do what they feel is right but you know you got to like really weigh out both sides before you just make a like make a decision like yes at the blatant value that the cow is getting slaughtered so you can eat we're not looking at the other side like where did this vegetarian food come from as you were mentioning all these, you know, little small animals are getting murdered by the by the milling and the uh, farming, and millions and millions of animals are dying from that. So, I don't know. Is it a size difference? Like maybe the rodents don't matter as much. Like, but all life is life, right? All life is sacred. At, at, at yeah, some point. it's interesting because, like, you know, vegans, uh, and I could say I myself was ignorant to that, you know, until I really learned more about that process. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, all life is in that framework should be viewed as, you know, important and, and share, you know, the same kind of respect. But I feel that a lot of that is overlooked. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that basically brings me to the idea of just gratitude when you're eating or when you buy that meat at the store. I wouldn't buy it at, you know, a supermarket. I would go to a butcher, ask where the cows are from, see how they're raised. Um, once you get that cut of meat, say thank you. Just thank you, you know, really look at the food and, and understand that something was slaughtered for you to survive and be healthy. Um, I don't think a lot of people do that when, when it comes to vegetarian food. Sometimes they do, but oftentimes, you know, it's a Native American tradition to honor the animal that was sacrificed for us. Um, I guess wrapping up more so, um, so Johnny, you've become more so of a uh, a go-getter these days. Um, you always constantly fight with yourself. Um, when you don't want to do stuff, you just get yourself to do it anyway. Um, what are some things that you would um, tell some people that uh, you know have a hard time getting up in the morning or don't want to do it because it's hard or because they, they don't feel good? Or what, I don't know, what would you like speak towards that? So yeah, I definitely have in recent months kind of tried to you know, kind of had my own little renaissance on what I want to get out of, you know, what I do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis and for my entire life. Um, and I, I've kind of made it an effort not only to, you know, uh, excrete a lot of, you know, these vices that I used to pleasure, you know, myself with and, uh, you know, you know, just bad habits that would plague my daily routine. Um, and I've kind of, in a way, made it an effort and made it conscious to, you know, really clean that up um, and and start with myself first. So, you know, look inward. I know Alex, you know, a while ago we talked about, you know, looking inward first before, you know, you go searching for an answer. Um, and, and that's essentially what I did. You know, I, I looked inward and reassessed what I wanted to get out of, you know, every living minute of my day, you know, uh, and that starts with uh, life, work, friendships, you know, toxic relationships, um, a big one we just went over, nutrition, diet, you know, where your food's coming from, um, and daily activities, and, and also this, this uh, 
kind of cutting out these vices was kind of m m one of the big things I wanted to get out of it. Uh, so kind of maximizing my entire day and, and not letting anything weigh me down. Um, and kind of in a way, putting myself in a position where I have to do something, uh, holding myself to a standard. So, you know, I, I know what I'm capable of. Every human being knows what they're capable of. And being able to kind of articulate to myself, like, hey, you can do this. You know, why are you holding yourself back from doing it? You know, and that was a big thing for me. It was like, I could tell I was kind of pushing myself down. Like, yeah, you can take a day off, you know, go, you know, whatever, you know, go drink with your friends, go out, have fun, you know, you know, obviously there's a time and a place for everything and balance is key, but I kind of have put myself in a mindset where um, I'm only competing against myself and I'm only beating myself at this, you know, in the same way. So am I going to let that, that other, that other side of me, you know, win, win myself over. So I've kind of, you know, Looked at a couple of things in my life, and initially it was, you know, with uh, training, what I want to get. Like, why why am I working out every day? Why am I getting up in the morning at, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. to go work out? Like, what, is it for exercise? You know, exercise purposes, obviously. Is it for health? Is it for my physique? Am I trying to impress somebody? You know, um, and I've kind of altered that to, like, you know, I, I want to do it for myself. Um and that's kind of one thing that has allowed me to just be so in, intrinsically motivated. Um, and it's kind of ever since then, I've, I've been able to just continuously level up um, with every everything in my life. So I kind of took one thing in my life, which was working out, um, and I analyzed it and I kind of, you know, reassessed why I was doing it. Why am I spending that hour and a half working out in, at the gym? For what reason? You know? Is it for myself? Is it for somebody else? Um, and, and I kind of went and strung that along with all the other things in my life. Um, even my job. My job is my livelihood. That's my income. Okay. Well, I know I need an income. I want to have a roof over my head. I want to be able to provide for myself. You know, a lot. We have debt. We have student loans. You know, stuff like that. You know, I went back and reassessed all that. I have a job that I might like, that I, you know, am good at, you know. I have to do it. Yes, I have the understanding and and, and, and and I'm conscious that it's something I have to do, you know, to pay the bills. But I'm, I'm also putting myself in the position to do something later down the road in life of what I want to do. So I kind of um, I kind of pushed a lot of my friends to, to do the same thing. Just go do a self-evaluation uh, of, you know, your goals and, and what you want to get out of, you know, every minute of your day um, and kind of change your perspective on some of the small things in your day that you do that might be, you know, wasting your time or might not be progressing yourself. And you don't necessarily always have to progress. I'm not always progressing every living minute of my day, but um, I definitely don't want to, you know, uh, take away from anything I've done and I don't want to, you know, negate any progress. So I've kind of just changed my outlook, um, you know, on 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 my entire life and my, my existence as a person um uh, you know everybody's got their own purpose uh whether you found it or not personally me say i haven't found it yet i don't i know i know it makes me tick you know here and there but um definitely in this con constant search of like uh what's really you know my end purpose or what what i want to do um but yeah you know, I, I definitely encourage everybody to just take a step back and and see what has it made you you know the type of person that you envision yourself uh to be uh whether it's now later you know eons from now you, you know you might you might just you know always have the thought in your head that you're gonna get there um and work every day um on on doing just that so yeah thanks for putting me on the spot yeah no you did a great job yeah, I think we could all learn a little bit from that. The, the self-discipline aspect is massive for every part of growth, whether it's spiritual, mental, or physical. And uh, I think everyone starts with the physical aspect first, right? They look at themselves in the mirror like, I don't like this. I have too much fat. I don't have energy. I'm inflamed in my face. Go to the gym, start working out. But a lot of people kind of lose that. They're like, no, nah, I'm not getting the results. I'm not, you know, enjoying the gym session. It's boring. All these things we hear, but holding yourself to that standard, as you were saying, and knowing why, why are you going to the gym? What else? What else do you want to get out of this workout? What else do you want to get out of yourself? 
Do you want to be lazy your whole life? Do you want to structure your goals? Exactly. And I, uh, sorry to cut you off, but also one thing I realized was I started manifesting things that were starting to come to me. Things that I would seek out, you know, you know, not to get into the details, into the weeds, but one thing was like kind of um, w women with females like i would you'd see uh, you know seek out try to you know, talk to a girl and try to get her attention eventually you want to focus on yourself more and, and you're shifting your focus kind of more towards who you want to be i started to manifest certain things where they would just come to me you know where uh, I, I knew i might not be ready for that or a relationship or you know might not be ready to, to be you know interacting with somebody and kind of you know let myself naturally go about you know my life to where that manifested itself in my life without me trying to go after seek it out uh which i felt like once that started happening i started realizing that things were you know starting to click um and i was on the right path to you know that so it's almost like you don't even have to try to seek it out you just have to put something in your mind like yes i want this but i don't need to have it you just put that, you plant that seed, you, you expect gratitude, and you also make the steps towards that goal. You don't just say, oh, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket, I'm gonna, I think I'll get rich if I get rich. Right? Yeah. You don't just buy a lottery ticket and expect all that money to just come to you. That's a poor person's mentality. I do a lot of, like, listening to Robert Kiyosaki and, like, um, uh, what's the other guy? Um, Grant, Grant Cardone. He's good, too. Uh, a couple other entrepreneurs, really good mindsets. Um, they just basically say like you gotta work towards your financial goals as well, and and you know making steps towards that is starting with yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, manifesting things in the right sequence and circumstances is is optimal. Um, so uh, just switching gears before we end on the last topic, uh, Damien, I. Uh, a couple of years ago, we talked about uh, ketogenic diet, getting you into it. Um, I know you liked your sandwiches a lot in uh, college. And uh, since then, <laughs> since then, it's true. It's true. how have you kind of, um, how, did, how are your energy levels? How did you start to feel? And uh, what was like the cascade of events after that? Like, you know, you know, weeks, months, years, time, like what can you remember from transitioning over from that way of eating to ketogenic lifestyle, maybe you threw in the cold showers as well. Like what did that do to your inner psyche? What did that do to you mentally and physically? Oh, it improved beyond like measure. I remember I just felt just very, very crappy, very slow, very lethargic. Um, like you said, I just, I didn't like how I looked and all that. And then once I went on the ketogenic diet, it's probably one of the best, uh, things I ever did. Uh, I noticed an uptick in energy, uh, decrease in lethargy, um, improved mental clarity, and um, I noticed myself going to the gym more. Um, and it was just, it was amazing, honestly. Um, I would recommend it to anybody, honestly. Um, you won't look back. Nice. And I, um, I kept talking you into the cold showers for a while, and you were like, I hate cold. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then one day, I guess you finally gave in, you gave it a shot. How did that work for you? It was good. At first, I'm not going to lie, it was it was tough. It was tough. You know, we're so, we're so, like, yeah, tied comfort. comfort. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just breaking that comfort, you know. It's just, it, it's it's hard, but you kind of have to hold yourself accountable and you do it. And, you know, it was like a, it was a slow transition. I didn't just start off, like, going into an ice freezing, you know, water. I kind of weaned myself into it. Uh, but now, like, I'll go in the shower and, you know, I won't take a warm shower. And I just, just the energy you get from it. Like, there's just nothing will wake you up better. And you won't feel more alive than you just get out of that shower. <laughs> yeah. You just feel like you're just so wired. It's just, yeah, it's it's great. Have you tried any of those? Uh, yeah, I have It's like the Wim Hof technique. Yeah. Oh, you actually get, get that whole thing done? I kind of just... Um, but I don't know, do you know anything about this? Because whenever I'm like about to put myself into that like ice cold shower, I do something with my hands and this is just completely inherent. I just, I kind of focus my intentions and like my energy and I kind of, I almost feel like I'm raising my body temperature. I'm raising my um, ability to ward off like that cold or that, 
bring up my discipline a little bit. Do you have any idea like what this represents? Yeah, so in traditional Chinese medicine, there's a meridian system. So we have these points on the body that have essentially the entire body is like the end of a meridian. And so when you're connecting, you know, these meridians together, you're essentially in, in the framework of the traditional Chinese medicine, they believe that you're allowing the energy to circulate more efficiently throughout your body because you're connecting these endings. Um, and then you also have, there's one meridian in particular, I believe it's this finger, it's called the triple warmer. Hmm. So there are certain mudras, which your ring, are- Your ring finger? I think, it's, I think it's this one. Okay. Um, they ha they're called mudras, where they're actually meditative uh, poses that you go in and you, you link certain meridians. And I remember encountering a study in particular where I think it was the thumb and the triple warmer increased respiration by like 25%. Um, and so the, they were noting like actual biochemical markers, you know, through something that is to many people just considered like kind of metaphysical, you know, whimsical, you know, not accepted by mainstream science um, because it's like, I guess, an alternative, you know, form of, uh, of medicine or, or healthcare. But um, again, in that framework, they would say that, you know, you are um, kind of concentrating your energy and more efficiently circulating it through your body. Hmm. So that could attribute to maybe what you're experiencing. Yeah. And is it, um, I guess it's wild that we kind of all have this built in where we kind of know what to do at what point in time and we kind of just suppress it due to society like no this is just woohoo you know like right right like an innate intelligence exactly that the conscious mind tries to override what the unconscious mind or subconscious wants to do um and and i'm sure giacomo can get into that with you know the the trauma patterns and and right. you know the psychosomatic aspect of how or why we do that right you know and we disregard our innate intelligence yeah a lot of the time uh whatever we're experiencing at that time of trauma, we'll hold on to it physically in our bodies, actually. And that book that you brought, The Body Keeps a Score, highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's a fantastic read, really kind of ties in psychology with biology of trauma. And so, like I was talking about muscle tension before, if we experience a trauma and, you know, we kind of guard ourselves and we get tight because we're trying to protect ourselves, if we never process that trauma, completely we'll stay with that tension throughout our lives mm. it'll become part of us because that's how we survived you know we're like we're tensed up all yeah tensed up here you know because we're, we're guarding ourselves like we want to be safe and so a lot of the time uh you got to take you got to take a breath you got to let go of it and then sometimes just working on psychologically processing that thing that's bothering you you know going through it and like why is it bothering me why can't i let go because I mean, everybody has those things that even if it's every day, like something happens to you, somebody cuts you off in traffic and now you're like all freaking out. Like, why is that freaking you out? Like what else is going on in your day? Like, why are you already at the top already? You know, like, and so just taking a step back saying it's not a big deal. That tension will go away. Um, it's, it's all built into survival. So it's just to tell ourselves that we're okay, we're safe and laugh. We're all, we're all okay. So laughter, <laughs> laughter is the antidote. Laughter is the best medicine. We know this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like poor vagal tones. What's that? Is, is that a cause of like poor vagal tone? Which part? Of, of you reacting. Uh, tightening my arm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that you would find the correlation there. Maybe like heart rate variability will be lower with somebody who's more prone to overreacting to a small stressor. But there's so many factors that go into that. To even back to diet, you know, if you're inflamed all the time, like your body's interpreting that, like your brain's interpreting that, you know, you think you're under attack all the time. Exactly. And they've done studies, they find out that high inflammation, chronic inflammation has an overactive sympathetic nervous system tied to it. So it, it goes very deep and there's psychological, biological factors that play into it. But um, there's, there's, there's a lot of things you can look at. Start with the simple things first. You know, ask yourself, like you was talking about before, ask yourself, what do I want? And what's what's keeping me from getting that? And why am I so freak, freaked out, you know? And how can you, besides for mentally saying, like, why are you, like, why am I so upset? Why am I so tight wound? 
Mm-hmm. What are some physical things that we can do to disengage that sympathetic response like quickly? So this is an easy thing to do. A long, deep breath out and a shorter breath in. So I was talking to Alex and Austin about this before that every time we inhale, we're activating the sympathetic nervous system, which increases our heart rate through the vagus. All right. When we increase the heart rate, we basically allow the heart to pump blood faster because it's in a larger state because when our chest expands, heart expands. So we need to get blood going out faster to keep cardiac output the same. And so if we want to reverse that and turn down sympathetic tone, we need to take a long exhale out and hold that. All right. While we hold that exhale, we're increasing our CO2 tolerance because we don't breathe because we need oxygen. We breathe because we have too much CO2 and it's telling our brain we got to take a breath in. So a good practice for any kind of stress relief and tension is long exhale out, pause, and a slow inhale through the nose. And I won't get into the nose because that's a whole other discussion. Maybe next time. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to that one. So just a gentle breath through the nose and then right back out. Don't hold it because whenever we hold it, we're holding on to our muscles. So just let it back out again. What do you think is a good book for that? A book? I got one. Um, what's it by James Nestor? I was thinking uh, Patrick McCowan, uh, Oxygen Advantage. Oxygen Advantage. I've heard of that one. That's a good one too. Yeah. CO2 retention. Mm-hmm. Actually increase your breath hold. Right. It's all uh, it's all tolerance. You know, it's the breath is really the the place where the mind and the body meet. You know, it's incredible because we think that we have to breathe this way to survive, but really, your body can go through some crazy stuff. I mean, we know that with exercise, like athletes have much better um, efficiency with oxygen transfer, and that's that's an adaption. We all have that ability. Well, us being two like you know bipedal animals allows us to change that Other right animals, that's why we're so effective as hunters right persistence hunting is just we were able to outrun whatever in buffalo yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah endurance is our game yep that's why we're so good at running so good at uh cardio that basically does nothing right. for calories <laughs> right. Right. pretty much it's relearning how to even run too you know yeah should you do not striking the heel yeah. Oh man, that's a whole another discussion. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you get a nice toe strike in, and uh, you know your Nike shoes are not doing you any favors. I think it's actually doing quite the opposite. Gotta get um, some some toe shoes, right? Yeah. Or just don't run. Work slow. Work slow. And I don't know. Gotta be slow with all of that. Oh, uh, like the transition. Yes. Yeah. Don't don't barefoot and like thinking you can jump over rocks and stuff. Because you're trying to train. Uh, That's me. Trying to train, retrain your arch and all that, like the whole. Uh, I I uh, for when it was warm out, I was barefoot running. Yeah, and I would I would just go out into the grass into the you know the park. Mm. Everybody'd be looking at me, but <laughs> it felt great. Oh yeah, you had them too. Yeah. Toe shoes. Yeah. I had the toe shoes, but I never ran in those. I don't like them. Hmm. I like to just barefoot. Yeah, I'm not for the, for the rocks. It's like yeah, it's I like cut myself back. once. Yeah. yeah, but like if you're on the grass, at least with taking off the shoes, you're getting grounding too. Yeah, connecting to the ocean. I would definitely not advise everybody to go out and start barefoot running. It's you know if you don't have a place to do it properly, it's not a good idea. Talk to your doctor first. Yeah, <laughs> but running outside is much better than the treadmill. So if yeah. you have an option do it outside the ground it's you know it's uneven and so that gives our ankle some place to work in and out if we're running on a treadmill it's the same thing every time we fall into the same muscular patterns and that's when you can get overuse injuries and you know certain buildup of muscle tension so go outside see everything you know let the world pass you by while you run through it because there's actually a great study that shows that optic flow seeing the world pass by you while you're moving um actually increases like dopamine production and that's kind of where the uh part of like the the good feeling of running it comes from the opioids as well but also it's from actually optic flow and seeing that we're moving through space Mm -hmm. that's like progression 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. So you're getting somewhere. If you just run on a treadmill, you don't get that same effect. You don't miss that. You feel like, sh you know. <laughs> running in the same space. Exactly. Exactly. I know from, from me, I could run for miles outside. I get on the treadmill, one mile is tough. I'm like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. That's why they put TVs in front of Exactly. Exactly. It's hard to have it exactly. focus your attention yeah. on just running on a treadmill. <laughs> yeah. I think you would do the same effect. <laughs> TVs. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, we got a uh, a nice reservation in about thirty minutes. If you, uh, <laughs> yes. Nice sushi, some white rice, cold load. So, uh, Big thank you guys for joining us. And uh, yeah, we're gonna be logging off. We'll send this to my page for you to revise. Thanks for joining us. See you.